Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. If you've been listening to the show, finding value in the show, and want to leave a review over on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, it would be greatly appreciated. Five-star reviews uh, make me happy, but you know, more than anything, I want to hear what you think so I can better serve my audience. Speaking of five-star reviews, I would like to give a special thanks to Callo Rose, who says, a really great podcast, five stars. I'm a third-year volunteer in the Kingdom of Tonga, and I love listening to these podcasts when I'm doing my laundry by hand, learning about other volunteers across the globe who have similar struggles, experience it and emotions really grounds me and reminds me why I love the Peace Corps. I love hearing stories from different countries and from volunteers who served long ago or are current volunteers. Thank you for reaching out and finding stories of so many different volunteers in this amazing Peace Corps community. Well, thank you for the review. Thank you for listening. And it makes me so happy that you're listening to my podcast while hand-washing your clothes because that's how I listened to podcasts when I was a Peace Corps volunteer. Well, let's get into this week's episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast, where I talk with Kinji Yamada, who served in Albania from 2007 to 2009. Without further ado, this is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. My name is Kenji Yamada, and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Kenji, how are you doing? Pretty good, Tyler. How are you? Doing very well and excited to talk to you about your time in Albania, a country that I don't know much about, but it's probably a country that you didn't know much about or that and as you've come back, you know, explaining to Americans of even where is Albania, who are Albanians, the culture, the languages, the foods and traditions. So I'm excited to learn a little bit more about the country that you called home for two years. Yeah, Albania is a it's an unusual country for its part of the world. It's in southeastern Europe, um, and when I you know when I got my assignment, like we all do, I started doing research on it, um, and I learned that its uh, its history in Europe is uh, one of the more painful histories of of countries that were part of the communist bloc, which Albania was. It was um, up until about the uh, the late '80s. Albania was kind of known as like the North Korea of Europe, meaning it was it was closed to foreigners, had a very hostile mm. foreign policy. It was hard to get into, hard to get much information about, just sort of the way that North Korea is now. Um, and so actually, I, I've been surprised over the years, both before my service and after, um, how many people I talk to here in the U.S. who actually do know something about Albania. And they know that it's, you know, it was a communist country with a very harsh regime and that it was closed to foreigners and not much was known about it for most of the 20th, you know, middle to late 20th century. Um, so that's the reputation I had, which was well-deserved for a variety of reasons. And, you know, living there, I got to get kind of an inside view of that, talking to folks who had lived through that. Mm-hmm. 
And when you applied to Peace Corps, you applied under the old system where you just sort of put in a general application. Maybe you let some preferences be known. But did you think you were going to end up going to Eastern Europe or were you open to anything? Maybe were you thinking you were going to get that, uh, the quote unquote iconic experience in Sub-Saharan Africa? You know, I don't remember distinctly what my thoughts were about an assignment in Africa, hypothetically. I, I was thinking Eastern Europe was likely, and actually I was kind of hoping to be assigned to Romania because um, I studied Latin in college, and Romania, as you may know, has um, a language descended from Latin and a, a lot of unusual features being part of the, the Eastern branch of Latin. So that kind of interests me. And Romania uh, does not border Albania, but they actually have a lot of interesting historical connections uh, through their languages, particularly in spite of not being neighboring countries or peoples in the present day. So in a way, I kind of landed where I was sort of hoping to. Uh, but Al- Albania itself, you know, culturally and linguistically, is also really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then this this is completely off topic, but I have to ask, since you said Latin, uh, did you happen to take Latin in high school? And if so, were you part of Junior Classical League? <laughs> no, I did not. I, I got into classics in college. I actually okay. started uh, with Greek. I, I was a minor, ancient Greek minor, and I took Latin as kind of a side thing along with that, you know, in the same department. Okay, yeah, because I, I took Latin in high school and technically in college just to get in my language credits, but I was part of uh, the junior classical league and then senior classical league sort of, uh, yeah, Latin club. So, oh, cool. Uh, rather rather nerdy, but yes, I, I also have a, a background in Latin, but I, I you your studies went far and beyond, and beyond <laughs> mine. I'm sure I would have liked to have been in that club if I had known about it in high school. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. But Albania. So what exactly were you doing in Albania as a Peace Corps volunteer? So I was an English education or TEFL volunteer. Um, so my, my main assignment was to um, train English teachers in my region. I was in a town called Peshkopia, which is in the northeastern part of Albania. It's kind of a rural town in the mountains, but kind of the center for its rural region. Um, so the teachers there, you know, they're the teacher core there have not, not had a lot of advantages in, in learning English, those who do teach English in the foreign languages programs in the schools there. So they needed, you know, some training. Um, and I had I did not have a teaching credential experience, but I had a linguistics degree from college. So I was able to do a lot of explaining English grammar to them. And especially as I got better at Albanian, I could explain English grammar in Albanian to them. And we had a lot of sessions mm-hmm. doing that. Um, I also co-taught some English classes at our local um, pedagogical school, which had a foreign languages program, high school uh, grades. So those were my main assignments. And then, of course, you know, as all of us, our PCVs know, you have your assignment and then you have the stuff you spend a lot of time doing that you figure out once you get to site. So um, I, a couple side projects um, with my site mate, my second year from the group after mine, um, I coached our first model UN team in our High school there, and we represent Burkina Faso. I know Burkina Faso was your country of service, right? Uh, yes, so, it was. So it's kind of funny. I, I caught my eye when I saw you um, had been a Burkina Faso RPCV, and we're looking for uh, volunteers to interview from Albania. Um, so that was one side project. Another I had was that I tried to get a, a community radio station started, low power FM station in in Peshkopia. I had uh, done a show on low power FM radio in Davis when I was in college, Davis, California. Um, so I, you know, spent some time getting to know people who had been involved in a similar effort earlier in Peshkopi, and we got some distance. And there were some people who were really into it, but unfortunately, we just couldn't get enough um, people together to form a persistent board who would carry the project through. You know, to make it a real community project. So learned some lessons there, but it was it was a project that I really cared about. Mm-hmm. And 
now, now doing this model UN and your students representing Burkina Faso, uh, what exactly did they think of Burkina Faso? What sort of things were they studying? What, what kind of prep do you do for model UN? We So uh, a lot of it was just looking up articles on the internet. Um, and interestingly, actually, that year, 2008, was when we first started getting decent internet in Peshkop in, in the <laughs> internet cafes. In my first year there in 2007, you know, when I would try to like uh, send emails home and stuff, getting on the internet at all was very difficult. There was one place you could do it and it was basically dial-up quality and often it would be completely non-functional. So we were just getting, you know, open to the world in that way of my, my high school students and they were able to use it to research for this school club. So, you know, we did a lot of, they researched, uh, Becca, my site mate, and I did, did research and brought stuff to them to read about Burkina Faso, what sort of country it was. Um, and then we would have club meetings where we, you know, we'd talk about what we learned and um, compare and contrast with Albania, um, think about questions we wanted to learn about Burkina Faso. Um, and the the biggest, you know, there's lots to learn, but the biggest thing that really struck uh, my students, I think, is that they... You know, they live in what is probably the second poorest country in Europe, Albania, probably Moldova is the poorest. Um, so they thought of themselves as, you know, living in a poor country, a, you know, a backwards country, a country that's uh, lacking in resources. And then learning about Burkina Faso, which is among the poorest countries in, in Africa, I believe, they really got a sense of what advantages they were enjoying that they had not realized were not to be taken for granted being in a you know, European country, even if a relatively poor one. Things about, uh, you know, just access to food, learning about desertification coming into Burkina Faso, you know, climate issues like that, um, quality of governance, different things like that. Now, you know, things Albania has to deal with as far as poverty and, and lack of development and corruption and things are very serious problems. They are not small, but um, Albania also has a lot of Euro, you know, resources available near to hand that are not available to a country like Burkina Faso. So I think it gave some perspective to my, my Albanian students seeing kind of where their country stood in in access to resources on a global scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Burkina is usually at the very bottom of the list in the like the UN Development Index and mm -hmm. all the similar indices. But it was very interesting hearing how your students sort of consider themselves to be in you know, a very poor country. And then as they started looking at Burkina, it's like, oh, well, actually, maybe we have some things. But it is also very true what you said that uh, that they they have their own struggles that are unique to them, and while you know Burkina might be facing a lot more sort of uh, basic level sustenance structures, mm -hmm. I, you know those are almost at times, at least for me, a little bit easier to figure out how to address than some of these things that Albania it was facing as far as you know governance and things like that. Mm -hmm. Those are those are much harder, at least for me, to wrap my head around. But maybe that's because of where I served and I tried to tackle. Uh, you know, food uh, availability and water and things like that. Yeah. And, you know, after the fact, learning, actually, I, I try to keep up on what's going on in Albania, even till now, you know, reading Albanian media and discussion groups and things like that. And I, I also came to realize a bit later that I, I kind of underestimated how much real poverty there was in Albania, even at the time, because the people I interacted with in um, Peshkopi were, you know, certainly I would call them, you know, they wouldn't reach, reach what we would call a middle-class lifestyle here in the U.S. You know, they really had a lack of economic opportunity and a lot of things. But mostly they were pretty much secure in food, you know, the, re the real basics of life. And I learned later that there was a lot of people in the outer villages farther out from Peshkopi who are not food secure in, in Albania. So those issues are not as absent as I had, had realized, and they're not as unique to places outside of Europe. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
where you served uh, Peshkopi, now you called that a town. So this is a town, and of course, as one does, I did a quick Google search. The last census, it was around 13,000 people. So it's pretty pretty big place. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do you, so you, what was your living situation? Were you in, a, in an apartment with electricity, running water? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it, it changed. When I first got to town, I had to hunt for a host family. We There was a change in policy in Peace Corps, Albania during my first year where they um, decided we could live apart from a host family once we got to site. But that changed after after I got to site. So when I got to site, I had to find a host family. And I was going around with my counterpart. Uh, we were asking around to see if I could find a place to crash. And there, in the meantime, there was <laughs> one family that was letting me crash in a spare apartment they had. And it was like a temporary situation. So little little nerve-wracking so we did eventually find someone and i stayed with them for about four and four and a half months or so a family in um in their house and you know i paid them the living stipend and all that stuff and then after that policy changed and i was able to move out into my own apartment which was basically just a little uh, studio that had been a room for teaching uh private tutoring courses and the owner converted into a little apartment for me to put in a bed and a, um, a sink and stuff so that was my living situation after that um, okay. And my landlord and his family were just like upstairs in the same building. So it was sort of almost like a quasi host family situation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was a, it was yeah running water, electricity. I mean, the electricity in Albania at the time would go out for a large part of the day often. And I think it still does, although it's some imp- somewhat improved since I left country. So it, it wasn't electricity all the time, but a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And the water would sometimes go out and then we would have water from what they call the deposit, which is, you know, storage tank on the roof. So... Off and on, but usually we'd have those things. Mm-hmm. And now getting into your service as a volunteer, do you have any favorite memories, those ones that you maybe find yourself reflecting on? Or if you were to go give a presentation about your time in Albania, like what are some of those memories that you hold on to as being your favorite? I think my, my favorite ones mainly involve conversations with people in, in my town. Um, I had a couple of friends that I'd meet up with for coffee a lot of times, Albanian friends, um, and we were able to have more in-depth conversations as my language improved. Um, conver- I had a lot of good conversations with my students. Um, some classes we'd get into topics about, you know, what kind of society is this? What kind of society do you want to live in? You know, things about like gender roles or just stuff you know meaningful things where there were young people trying to figure out what they thought about stuff and those conversations are among my favorite memories i think in country Mm -hmm. and did you find it easy to to pick up the language given your linguistics background like how how readily did you pick up speaking albanian yeah i definitely did find it a lot easier than my other my fellow volunteers in my group because of having studied linguistics in college and also actually uh latin and i studied latin and greek in college as well and at the time studying them in college i thought you know these are fun but unless i go into classics as a professor you know an academic they're not really going to be of practical practical use turned out they were of great practical use learning albanian because there's a lot of uh things about albanian grammar that mirror the grammar of latin and ancient greek so things like you know uh, noun cases nominative genitive accusative or like uh, things like accusative of respect, you know, uh, accusative of time when, all these things that we learn in studying Latin. Uh, mm-hmm. Albanians got those things, and I already got them, so that that really helped me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, and how long did it take you to really 
be comfortable to have those deeper philosophical sort of things. Because I know for me in my training, you know, I came to country with zero French background. And by the time I left after the three months of training, yeah, I could function. I could go to the market, I could buy stuff. But it definitely took me a while to start parsing out things uh, like politics and even, you know, I come from a scientific background and I don't know if I ever felt comfortable explaining some of these scientific theories and stuff that sort of what is my <laughs> intellectual knowledge base here in the United States. So how long did it take you or did you ever really feel that you got to that point where you could really start having these, these deep conversations? I got, um, it's hard thinking back, I, I guess maybe about a year into service, I felt like I was really getting solid fluency but actually there's kind of an interesting paradox i find especially with um, european languages where it's sometimes it's easier to talk about um, technical or philosophical subjects than daily ones because the technical and philosophical ones have so many you know cognate words and mm-hmm. um so the, the 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 vocabulary and the grammar are are more uh, predictable and similar to our own language whereas daily topics you know there'll be all these little pithy expressions very, you know, short, brief things that like grammar is not so transparent or the, the words are not cognate to English. And so I, I found daily speech is actually harder. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. And in, in, I guess, do you, coming from a linguistics background, now, now that I've got you on the show, and do you have any recommendations for volunteers? If someone who's listening, who's maybe about to go into Peace Corps, uh, someone who's currently in Peace Corps, or maybe someone like myself who maybe wants to pick up a language down the road, given your language background, is there anything that you found useful or is it, you know, go towards immersion as quickly as possible? Uh, well, I mean, you, you know, being in country, as long as you're not just hanging out with expats or um, English speakers, immersion is kind of inevitable. You're going to get it one way or the other. I found the biggest thing that helped me accelerate my learning was to, um, treat it almost like a scientist. Like you're coming up with theories to try to understand, okay, is this correct? If that's, if that's how this expression works, can I switch these out? And does this expression also work using the same grammar? And you ask people, you try them out, get laughed at, you know, (laughs) say, if if you say this, would you say this? Just keep, keep running these little experiments being like, ah, have I got how it works now? If it worked this way, then it must be correct to say this and just keep, keep trying that with people. And, And, um, I found in Albania, and I think most volunteers will probably find in their communities, people, people love that. They really enjoy, most people really like it that you're trying to learn their language and making an effort. And, you know, some people are busy. They, not everyone wants to be your, your language consultant, but a lot of people do. And um, if you show the effort and the goodwill, I think you'll get a lot of help with that. So I, I spent um, a few things, I techniques I used to try to accelerate my learning. One is that I carried around a little notebook and wrote down new vocabulary as I heard it. Like if I heard a conversation, people talking to each other or talking to me, and I heard a word that I thought might be useful, note that down. And then when I would go back and look at it in my notebook, and I think there's something about physical paper really more than even than electronic media, I'd, I'd remember that conversation and it really helped me cement that vocabulary item as I'd go back over that notebook. Oh, you know, so Agimi or whatever, this person said this in this context, you know, so that yeah. helped me acquire vocabulary. Um, and then the other part, another part is, um, as I learned grammar, you know, I would try to generalize from it. You know, if, if you can put these words together this way, can I swap out this one for this other one or, and, and try them out, ask someone, if I say this, is that correct? And they'd say, no, you got to do it this way. And, you know, and just keep experimenting that way. Um, my, you know, we all get our um, pre-service training language, language classes, and mine were really good. My teachers are really good. Um, I don't know, all volunteers may not have 
a great experience with their their language classes. Um, but I found that combined with going home to my host family and trying to apply what I learned each evening was great. It was just a fantastic combination. It was an ideal language learning environment. And I, I found constantly, especially for my first few months of service, um, I would learn a new word and sometimes it wouldn't even be a particularly, you know, a word that you'd expect to be very frequently used. And I would hear the word I had learned like three times that very day used in other people's conversations. It was just like constantly getting reinforced. So it was very easy to learn vocabulary fast that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely never considered myself to be a, a language person, uh, not someone adept at, you know, language acquisition. Uh, but yeah, Peace Corps definitely opened it up in sort of different tips and tricks and, and yeah, immersion, just, just hearing it and having it reinforced. And definitely what you said of, you know, having the training and then going home to your host family and trying to use it. Uh, I had both a, a benefit and a disservice for my first month in training. My host sister was actually fluent in English. Oh, <laughs> she, she, yeah, she was like the only person in the town that could speak English other than the volunteers. So I, so I, so I used her as a crutch constantly because why would mm-hmm. I force myself to fumble through this language? So I definitely, uh, slowed down my my pace of of language learning uh because of her uh but it was a a good friendship that was made there yeah that is a great point and that is a trap a lot of volunteers fall into and i saw some fellow volunteers in albania fall into you know spending a lot of time with people who speak english and speaking english with them you know got you got to push yourself out of that and try to cut yourself off from your english to the extent that you can and make yourself learn albanian or french or whatever your community language is so that, you know, necessity, necessity is a great motivator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is the language is really the, the, the most important skill for, for yeah. thriving as a volunteer. Yeah. And you can, um, I, I also tried, I wasn't always consistent because, you know, you do miss being able to speak English, but I tried even when I would go somewhere and someone could speak English kind of, and they would try to speak with me because they wanted to practice, you know, I would say, you know, please speak Albanian with me because, you know, and usually they would oblige me. And sometimes I'd speak a little English with them after that, you know, let them have some practice too. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, English being the, the dominant language of the world right now, for better or for worse, we are going to, we all do run into a lot of people who want to practice their English with us naturally enough. And we got to, make an effort to ask them to let us have some practice in their language too. And, you know, not slip into English all the time. Mm-hmm. And is there anything that you struggled with as a volunteer? Yeah, there was some, there were several things. Um, the, the logistical stuff like the electricity or the, and the water going out, that could be a, an annoyance at times. Um, not having internet for a while was, you know, an isolating factor since the internet had been a major part of how I communicated with people back here in the U S um, but the, the biggest, the, the biggest struggle that was the hardest to deal with was just the cultural isolation because Peshkopia is, um, it's in a rural zone and, uh, roads to it are, you know, windy mountain roads. So travel is very slow. And my first year there, actually, um, the nearest other foreigner to me was another Peace Corps volunteer in another town that was, took about three hours to get to by a mini, by bus or minibus. So, you know, it was a whole lot of time just being, surrounded by Albanians and no, nothing but, and just, you know, kind of feeling like I couldn't connect with anybody who really understood my culture. I mean, I knew a lot of people in town who were, you know, nice people and enjoyed talking to them, but you know, there's just a, a relaxation you can have talking to someone who shares your culture, your assumptions, the questions you ask about life, just, uh, norms of behavior. 
you know, there's, there's a rest in that that really helps you. And when you or would go without it for a while, it can be tiring. So that was a struggle for me. Just yeah, as yeah. I'm sure, you know, Albanians feel when they immigrate to this country. <laughs> so I got a little empathy there being the feeling of being an immigrant. Mm-hmm. And actually interesting, you know, one thing that um, one connection I had with that personally is my dad is Japanese, you know, and he when I was born in Japan, my mom's American, but um, we moved here when I was a baby. And, you know, growing up, my dad struggled a lot with cultural isolation. I mean, he had he had found a few Japanese friends here in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area, but he there was a lot of frustration, you know, dealing with the American cultural norms and just wishing he could have time when he could you know, just be Japanese and um, have the kind of behaviors from other people around him that he, you know, had grown up to expect. And, you know, especially hard for him from his own family, his own wife and children, you know, being a different culture than him, you know, that was a real struggle. So I got, a, I got more empathy for what my dad went through to bring me up as a child, being a foreigner in another country myself for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you experience anything as a volunteer that was maybe different from your fellow uh, white American volunteers? Because did it, Albanians have this perception of, okay, Americans, Americans are white. And then yeah. now you're, now you're coming in, you're, you're a Japanese American. Did they, did they understand that or did, did that create any tension or interesting teaching opportunities for you? Yeah, I did have a lot of conversations about it. Um, I, you know, I, I look, I look pretty mixed and some people think I look more white. I don't necessarily look very Asian if someone's not paying close attention. So, uh, I think I did pass for a white American to some Albanians who, you know, didn't know what a half Asian person looks like. But, um, you know, when they would see my name, you know, I would, we'd have that conversation and, um, the Albanian, it, it was never, it was never any kind of hostility or tension. It was just interesting to talk about just our different views of culture and, and ethnic identity. And the typical Albanian way of, of thinking about it is you are from, or you are what your dad is or was. So mm-hmm. I, I would meet Albanians who are from Kosovo, which is not part of Albania, the Republic of Albania. It's a neighboring uh, area full of mostly ethnic Albanians. Um, they would say, I'm from Kosovo. And I'd say, well, you don't talk like someone from Kosovo because Kosovo are Al- uh, Albanians have a very distinct accent and their language is really readily apparent. I say, you sound like you're from Albania. And they'd say, well, yeah, I, I was, I grew up, I was born and grew up here in, Al- in Albania. And I'd say, well, you said you're from Kosovo. And they're like, well, yeah, but my dad's from Kosovo. So I'm from Kosovo. And I'd be like, oh, you mean something different <laughs> by from than I do. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we'd have that. So, uh, consequently, you know, a lot of Albanians I talked to when they'd say, you know, What's your origin? That's the word they use. What's your origin? And I'd say, well, I'm American and my, my mom is American, but my dad's Japanese. And they'd be like, oh, your dad's J- from, from Japan? I'd say, yeah. Well, then you're Japanese. And I'd be like, uh, in a sense, yeah. But uh, <laughs> you know, we'd have that conversation about ethnicity versus culture versus upbringing and all that stuff. So, Yeah, very, very interesting of, of, of how they sort of see themselves and identify uh, being f- from a place. It's not necessarily from as we think it but where their i guess patronage uh leads them to yeah yeah it's very father oriented oh there was one funny thing uh when i when i lived with my host family during pre-service training um i uh, I was not real tidy in my room i'd kind of leave my backpack lying around you know stuff strewn around and one time when i was out at class or whatever you know family friends came over and they showed my host family showed them the room i was staying in and then the fam the family knew the host family of one of my fellow volunteers in our training village and word got back to me that that family had thought my room was very messy. And they said, Oh, the Kinesi, the, the Chinese guy, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> leaves his room a mess. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm not Chinese, but yes, I do. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, well, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm messy, but not not Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, is there is there anything that you miss about Peace Corps? Um, Peace Corps, as such, I you know I miss. There's that feeling of camaraderie when you get together with your fellow volunteers because you're going through this really intense, all-encompassing experience together. I, I do miss that. Um, I recently had um, my 10-year reunion with my group. We went met up in Washington D.C. Um, last year i think it was and that, that was really nice to see them all again it was it was a great feeling we you know kind of reminisced and caught up and stuff and so i you know i, I miss my fellow volunteers and being with them um, most of what i miss though is more about albania than about peace corps so um, mm-hmm. i it's there's you know mixed feelings there's a lot that's very frustrating about albania and then there's a lot i, I like and it's hard to sum them up into one quantity but uh, I miss certain people, Albanian friends that I had there, who I maintain contact with. Some of them, um, I miss. It's fun, you know, learning a language, language and a culture, and knowing that you're getting better at it steadily and getting uh, deeper into your understanding of the community. That's a good feeling. It's a feeling of progress, and you can take pride in it and stuff. So I do miss that. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm thinking about it, many volunteers talk about missing food from a particular, from their country of service. Uh, is there any food that you miss? Well, so, you know, I'm, I'm vegan now and I was vegetarian then. So, you know, uh, dairy and eggs, but no meat and mm-hmm. Albanian cuisine uses lots of meat. So there's a lot of characteristic Albanian dishes that I did not eat. So <laughs> I kind of missed out on a lot of Albanian cuisine by choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some that I really liked. Um, it's a lot of the food is very typical kind of Eastern Mediterranean food. Um, um, you know, certain s- salads and stuff are like pilaf, you know, rice with certain, um, spices on it. Um, and they also made, you know, uh, dolmas, you know, like the grape mm-hmm. leaf dumplings. That was a thing people made there. There were, there was actually different names for it. There's, um, dolma is what they call it sometimes in the South, uh, yaprak, other places. And they call it sarma in my region. And these are all ter- different Turkish words. I mean, like wrapped or leaves or different things. So um, my the teachers I worked with the the women teachers sometimes would bring me uh, sarma mejete rushi like grape leaf uh, dolmas basically and that was kind of nice the homemade dolmas I enjoyed that um, I also really like the Turkish coffee which is a common thing in rural Albania mm-hmm. um, and you can get that here in the U S I, I have you know it's a Mediterranean restaurant in my neighborhood here I can get Turkish coffee but it's not quite the same the way they make it in Albania they put different stuff in it and so I, I enjoy I just enjoyed that kind of experience of like sitting and, you know, drinking the little coffees with my friends and all that stuff. So that was a big part of the, the, the culinary part I got. But the, all the, the meat dishes didn't get into any of that. <laughs> there are a lot of them that are Albanians are very proud of. Mm-hmm. And uh, funny enough, I actually drank a lot of Turkish coffee in Burkina Faso. Really? Uh, but, yeah, but only when in uh, Bobo Jalaso, which was uh, the largest town near me. And they had this little place that... I guess they may have been Turkish, but they had Turkish coffee, which was amazing. And it wasn't the instant coffee that I got in village. So that was always my treat to myself. I would go there. There was a grocery store across the street. I would get a chocolate bar, then go get the <laughs> Turkish coffee. And they had pretty good Wi-Fi. So I would just watch YouTube. <laughs> I would watch YouTube videos and drink Turkish coffee. And that was my treat to myself about once a month. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. I suppose that must have been the far reach of the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, and then you talked about being a, a vegetarian in a very meat-centric culture. Yeah. Did you, did you find that 
easy once you sort of explained it or did they not understand like what is what is vegetarianism because i know i a lot of volunteers uh, i get this question or I've, it's come up of you know i'm a vegetarian will i have to and i actually was a vegetarian for seven years leading up to peace corps but actually started eating meat in preparation of peace corps hmm. and ate a lot of meat in peace corps because uh, mine was more the sort of disdain for factory farming and mm. definitely no factory farming in Peace Corps. There are uh -huh. very few, very few fences <laughs> in, Burkina, <laughs> in Burkina Faso. Uh, so what was your experience with that? It, I was worried about it before I went, you know, I thought I talked about it with my recruiter on the phone. Like, is this going to be a problem? And she, she, you know, she's an RPCV herself and thought I'd probably be able to manage it. And it turned out she was right. Uh, my main worry was just, you know, I might offend someone who really mm. wanted me to eat the thing they prepared for me. And, um, usually I was able, I, I never ran into a situation where anyone was very clearly offended. There are a lot of people who were just kind of mystified and just kind of like, Oh, okay, whatever. It's like, um, why? It's like, yeah. why would you yeah. do this to yourself? Yeah. It was, it was a lot of why I, my host family in Peshkopi, um, host mom had one, you know, I explained moving in. I, you know, I said, um, I, I don't eat meat all, you know, I rice beans, that's all fine salad. All those things are fine. So we had a clear understanding of everything. And also I would eat yogurt at the time, although I don't now. So there was, there was a lot of good options. It was, you know, nutritionally sufficient. Um, but I remember one time as I was leaving for school, like she's like, she took me aside. She's like, Kenji, why do you, what, you don't eat meat? And I said, yeah. And she's like, why? I was like, because, um, well, animals, I had learned the word suffering. So like, well, animal suffering. And she's like, what do you think animals are for? What do you think they were made for? <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't know. What were we made for? And she's like, but we're not animals. And I was like, well, I think we are. She said, okay. <laughs> I went to school. It's <laughs> like, so, well, I'm done with this conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't bad. You know, there was no ill anger or anything. It's just kind of like, what? On her side. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people kind of made fun of me for it uh, on some occasions and stuff, which is okay. <laughs> I can handle that. Usually yeah. I was able to just say, I'll, I'll just have the, the pilaf and the beans and the, the, course, the yogurt and stuff. And that was fine. Yeah, you get uh, comfortable with being made fun of as a volunteer. Yeah, yeah. Mo now, actually, the, the people who made fun of me the most were little boys in the street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can they can be cruel. Yeah, I got I got to a point where I, I could usually give them a little you know comedy routine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, other than actually learning Albanian, is there anything that you learned in Peace Corps that has stayed with you? There is a lot. Um, it's harder to consciously identify and verbalize it, but I mean, sir, the, that two years in Albania changed me profoundly in you know, ways that will probably never go away. Um, I guess in the broad scope, just my view of the world and my place in it, you know, having lived in another society, having been a foreigner, I culturally isolated feeling like, you know, my, my language and culture are the weird thing and other people's cultural language is the normal thing. That, that feeling is really important has really given me more, uh, deeper understanding of what it's like for immigrants in my own country. That's mm -hmm. a big thing. Um, also when I see media news reports about Albania, comparing that to what I know about Albania from my own up close experience and seeing what the journalist doesn't know kind of mm -hmm. gives me a, a window into the, the limits of journalist knowledge of countries that they report on. So when I see things about other countries that I haven't been to, I can kind of imagine like, Oh, I bet this kind of thing is going on or, you know, 
gets me a little little more of an informed kind of skepticism rather than just kind of a blanket skepticism about news reports on other countries and what's going on there. Um, and I, I still try to maintain my you know, use of Albanian language and, and connection with Albanians. And um, I went to an Albanian uh, Independence Day celebration here in my area, actually, that was hosted by local Albanians a while ago. It took me a long time to find Albanians here in the East Bay and San Francisco Bay Area, but I did eventually and was able to connect with some of them. So I, tr- I try to maintain that, and I probably will keep trying to maintain that my whole life as long as I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually talked to one of my best friends, uh, a, a host country national, uh, last uh, last night, and he was making fun of me for having forgotten all my Jula, my local language. And I was like, uh, there's, there's like, there's no one for here for me to talk to. Oh, uh, yeah, that must be impossible. <laughs> yeah. So he was like, you must find them. You can't lose your Jula. So I, I told him I would, I would go looking and I live in Washington, DC. So I guarantee you there are a bunch, um, oh, yeah. but, but it's, uh, they're not as readily available as French speakers. Hmm. Yeah, it was actually, you know, I visited Washington, D.C. for my group reunion, and um, a couple times I've been there, I've been surprised how many a- African immigrants there are in D.C. specifically. From, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know how many of them are from Burkina Faso or from West Africa, but certainly a lot of Ethiopians. And I mean, it's more immigrants from Africa than I see in where I am <laughs> compared to immigrants from other parts of the world. Yeah, definitely a lot of East Africa, Ethiopia, uh but then you every now and then you do you do come across West African, and that's usually I enjoy being able to bust out my French because I, I, as I should, since I learned it there, I do speak it like a West African with a uh, West African accent. So they're always, uh, is always confused of how this West African accent is coming out of this giant white dude. Oh, that's cool. Have you ever yeah. spoken with a French person and, and uh, have them notice oh, that you speak? <laughs> oh yeah. No, they always look at me confused and like, where did you learn French? Like Burkina Faso is like, oh, that makes a whole lot of sense. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Yeah, they find my French to be atrocious, but uh, whatever. I found um, speaking out Albanian um, with Albanians here, a, a lot of the Albanians here in the Bay Area are actually from Kosovo, not Albania, and the way they speak is real different. Um, yeah, Albanians have a very, very you know, kind of pan-ethnic solidarity sense about Albanians from all the Albanian territories, as they call mm-hmm. them. So there's not so much of a division for them about that. But for me, like when I talk to someone from Kosovo, I'm like. It doesn't quite do it for me the way it does talking for someone from Albania because I'm like, the experiences are different living in Kosovo than in, in Albania as far as culture and, and history and stuff. So I don't, um, I don't, I don't kind of almost don't think of Kosovars as Albanians in a way, which if any yeah. Albanians are listening to this, are probably kind of offended by my saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, is there is there anything else uh, from your your Peace Corps service, you know, experiences, stories, or just high level ideas that you would like to share with the uh, listeners of the podcast? Um, high level, just kind of the, the normal truisms about Peace Corps service that you know, living in a foreign country is really good for your understanding of where you are in the world and getting a broader view of of um, what human experience is. Um, you know, anyone who wants to do that, I'd highly recommend, um, especially Peace Corps compared to other ways of, of living abroad, because I think Peace Corps really is unusual in the way that it immerses us in a community and in a language. We don't live an expat life in a capital or we don't, you know, pop in for a month and leave. Two years is a, is a you know, kind of brief in a way, but it's a, a period of time that really lets you profoundly change your mind and your understanding. And the way Peace Corps does it really does effectively um, help us to 
feel and live the way that people do in in normal life in our countries and not just privileged you know people in privileged parts of the country and i think that's important mm-hmm. yeah it definitely kind of almost ruins vacations to a, an, exotic, <laughs> an exotic destination you you always know that you're really not experiencing it but yes you know, it's yes. it's you know the the best you can do yep exactly well, I've enjoyed uh, talking with you, learning a little bit more about your experience in Albania. Uh, to close out the show, do you have a favorite quote or local saying or uh, several? I know sometimes it's hard to choose from, but uh, hit us with a little bit of uh, Albanian and, uh, you know, ideally an English translation to follow. Okay. Sure. So um, I had a few here that I, I wrote to you in the, the prep for this. Um, one Albanian expression I think of a lot is... Uh, Gur gur bahet mur, mur mur bahet kala, which means stone stone a wall is made, wall wall a fortress is made, and the meaning of it is basically you know gradual progress will get you there, you know, uh, mm-hmm. journey of a thousand steps kind of concept there. So I, I like that, and there are a lot of old castle ruins in Albania, so it's a you know locally appropriate metaphor. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, another one I like is nukmbulohet uh, dieli meshosh, which means the sun is not covered with a strainer. And that's what people say when someone is trying to hide something that is already painfully <laughs> obvious. <laughs> you can't cover the sun with the strainer. Um, another one is nukapul uh, padera. There's no forest without pigs, meaning everything has its faults. You know, nothing's perfect. Uh, so sometimes when I'm hiking, I'm in the forest. I kind of think, you know, think to myself a little joke like, oh, here's a forest with no pigs. <laughs> <laughs> Although we do have some wild pigs here in California. Um and one last little expression. There's a whole category of verbal grammar in Albanian called the uh, optative mood, which is a form you put in to mean may this happen, or it's kind of a wishing thing. And an expression you use when you see someone eating is you buffed mir, which literally means may it do you good. And that's just kind of a nice good wish, someone that they may get good nutrition and enjoy their meal. And I, I like that. It's a customary thing, and it's a good way to express goodwill to people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we there were several things like that in Burkina Faso, and it just makes me what once I learned those in that language, just that there are so few pleasantries that we give absolute strangers in America that yeah. that was was commonplace of uh, if you see someone eating, you know, or you were at a restaurant, you would invite someone else to eat with you just out of you know being being polite, and they would you know respectfully decline but thank you and and wish you well in your meal and you would do the same and it's pretty much like every everyday interaction it was you were just supposed to you were kind of um required to to interact with the people around you and it was just so nice and then here in the united states it's you know headphones on head yeah. down go through life yeah although we do have our expression have a nice day in america <laughs> Which is often made fun of, but I think it's great. I think we should be proud of have a nice day. It's good to wish people a nice day. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I I think so too. So we 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 do have one. Have a nice day. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much for taking some time uh, to talk a little bit about your Peace Corps service. It has been a pleasure, and uh, I I wish you the best. Thank you. Likewise to you. <laughs> And there you have it, another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you get a new episode delivered to you every single Tuesday 
when I release them. Also, if you haven't actually gone onto the website and checked out the show notes, uh, I definitely recommend doing it. Some of the podcast apps pull the show notes in there. But the volunteers, when they come on the show, they fill out this questionnaire and they provide a lot of uh, interesting stories. Uh, sometimes their show notes are a little shorter, but uh, Kenji has this awesome story that, that he talks about, uh, sort of an, an, an experience that he shares when I ask, you know, what's your favorite Peace Corps memory? And that story didn't make it into the show. And that's often how it works. You know, when we're having these conversations, different things come up. Uh, but definitely go check out the show notes for this episode and the other episodes and other things that you can find find over at mypeacecorestory.com. If you have any recommendations for things that you would like to see uh, on the website with the website, let me know. I'm always uh, interested in hearing what you guys think and what you guys want to get out of the My Peace Corps Story platform. Until next time, it's been a pleasure. Remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours? What's yours?